In the overall technology industry picture, HPC is a relatively small segment, but it's a high prestige and high credibility segment. But overall, I think it's a tremendously difficult thing to do for a piece of technology that is of national importance. And there's a lot riding on this. From Orion X, in association with Inside HPC, this is the At HPC podcast. Join Shaheen Khan and Doug Black as they discuss supercomputing technologies and the applications, markets, and policies that shape them. Thank you for being with us. Hey, Shaheen. Good to be with you again. Good to be with you. How are you? Very good. Yeah, we had a big piece of news last week that came out, which fits into this whole multi-year saga of Aurora Exascale supercomputer going to Argonne National Lab. It was meant to be the first American exascale system. It's funny, Intel's had two systems called Aurora. One was going to be pre-exascale. The other is going to be, presumably, exascale. Both were delayed. And so Aurora that was to have been delivered last year is supposed to be delivered by the end of this year, maybe sometime in the first half of next year. And what they've announced is that Blades with the Ponte Vecchio high-end GPU and the Sapphire Rapids CPU, which is not yet generally available, those two chips are powering the blades and they're being shipped to Argonne. So with that introduction, I'll let you make a comment. (laughs) Well, I think it is a significant milestone. Certainly shipping blades is better than not shipping. (laughs) (laughs) Uh And you do need the blades to build a system. So my hope is that The system is being rapidly built even as we speak. I think that some of the interconnect wrinkles have been ironed by now, so hopefully they can benefit from the experiences that have been gained until now. So fingers crossed, we will see it sooner than later. Fingers crossed. I mean, I made a slightly snarky comment in my article that said, boxes of blades do not a system make. And we know that at Oak Ridge with Frontier, they had a lot of trouble working slingshot the fabric so that the full system will be engaged. And who knows? Who knows? We don't really know what kind of systems issues, if things of that nature may be encountered at Argonne, but we wish them all the best. Right. I think the uniqueness and the scale of systems like this means that there are things that you cannot test until after you're on site and you've actually built a system. So there's always a bit of an unknown, but also there's more experience now than there was before. So we hope that that happens well. I also think that while circumstances can cause this, and when you look back at how we got to where we are now, you could point to, you know, different reasons. Intel nevertheless deserves some criticism for how they have or have not communicated the status of the system to the community at large. I'm hoping and I'm sure that they've been in deep contact with Argonne and all the people who are responsible for these things. But the community has had a pretty giant appetite and curiosity about the state of the system. Mm-hmm. And I think that on occasion, they've been a little bit uh, neglected. And I think yes, we saw some of that come out in the Twitterverse with expressions of unhappiness, to put it kindly. <laughs> some emotion. Yeah. It's almost as though Intel kind of waits till there's a crisis on hand, and then they go into crisis communications mode. I know two years ago with 
in July when they announced the delay of a year or so or several months that, you know, it's, it just generates a ton of coverage and emotion. It, there's a lot on the line, you know, yeah, in, yeah. The, in the overall technology industry picture, HPC is a relatively small segment, but it's a high prestige and high credibility segment. So if you're going to compete in it and you run into these issues, it's a real problem. I mean, when things go wrong and when I was at the Frontier Ribbon Cutting Ceremony at Oak Ridge in August. And that's when Lisa Sue told me, and then she told the audience, that she took the whole Frontier project very personally because it's an enormous achievement, but also an enormous project to get a system like yeah, that. It's a big burden. Developed. Yeah. So we'll, we'll see what happens. Well, I think it starts with recognizing that you do have a crisis communication situation at hand. And my suspicion is that Intel never saw it that way. They probably mm-hmm. figured that we're communicating with Argon all as well. Those who need to know do, and maybe that's fine. But I think the community had a well-justified growing interest in the state of things. And of course, research projects were hanging in the balance and the delay isn't like a normal delay. It's been delayed too many times. And I think when you cross a threshold, you have to really start turning on crisis communication mindset. Well, we are where we are now. And I wish them well. And hopefully next time we talk about this, we are talking about top 500 status. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I think it's kind of a measure of the, the reputational stakes that are on the line that it appears Argon might be the first or certainly among the very first customers to which Sapphire Rapids and Pontevecchio are being shipped. Otherwise, to sample Sapphire Rapids, you have to go on the Intel developed Dev Cloud, mm. Developer Cloud, which offers free access to their advanced technology that's not yet generally available, which kind of transitions into, we should talk about Intel Innovation Day, because actually... Yeah. In fact, all of this stuff came out of the Intel Innovation Day about a week ago from the time we were recording. And I thought they did a marvelous job. I thought they hit all the notes. I thought Pat Gelsinger was in good form. And the whole event was brilliantly choreographed. Well, good. When you say all the right notes. Yeah, I'll go through the laundry list as I remember it. Okay, yeah. So in no particular order, they did launch the 13th generation of the Intel architecture, x86. They talked about manufacturing capabilities being on track. Now, given Aurora and given everything else that's happened, a bunch of that proof is going to be in the pudding, but it was nice to hear that it is on track. And that's an example of good communication. This is when they did it well. They talked about chiplets and chiplet customization, pretty similar to what we talked with Steve Conway last week in our episodes, where customization is going to start at the chip level and then go all the way to the data center. But that was a segue also into the Intel Foundry services and how these chiplets could come from various places. They had a pretty big portion on one API and software. They really did a good job in terms of formulating it as developer challenges and how the Intel software portfolio can help that from development itself to machine vision to AI workflow and things like that. They talked about graphics. Obviously, Ponte Vecchio was part of the conversation there and the fact that it's shipping, but also graphic cards for gaming, and they used the opportunity to undercut the competition by a pretty good margin on price. 
And that's supposed to be shipping October 12th. So that's around the corner. They had previously talked about graphic cards for the cloud. They talked about Silicon Photonics. They had a really cool demo in their facilities in Scotland, if I'm not mistaken. And it was a live demo and it went well. You know, there was a little bit of a tiny potential glitch that didn't happen, but it was nice to show that. Yeah. They talked about quantum computing and talked about their silicon spin strategy that is relying on their prowess in chip technology, which makes perfect sense, and their software SDK to run quantum algorithms on classical systems. And then they talked about open systems, which was brilliant as well. And they brought Linus Torvalds on stage and gave him an Intel Innovation Lifetime Achievement Award, if I'm not mistaken. Nice. Which nice. was really quite nice. So all in all, it was fabulous. And they, they did a good job. Yeah. Now, are you seeing the imprint of Pat Gelsinger, who is coming up, you know, in a few, in four months or so, will be Marquez's second year at the helm of the company? I sure do. And as you know, I've been a big fan of how he has managed to get in the saddle and retain a whole bunch of excitement about the company, even as he's grappling with problems that I have no doubt are pretty complicated to solve and require a lot of time. The standard inclination is to just go go quiet and solve everything and let everything emerge and speak for itself kind of thing. Yeah. But you never have time like that. You have to generate excitement from the get-go and come up with a strategy and a vision that you're not going to be able to change a whole lot as you go forward or you look like you're flip-flopping. And I think he's just hit all of those things really nicely. I mean, very impressively to me. It's hard. It's really hard to do what he has done and what his team have done. Now, they still have to execute on some things. I still criticize them for some things like Aurora Communication. But overall, I think it's a tremendously difficult thing to do for a piece of technology that is of national importance. And there's a lot riding on this. Well, you know, if a company takes on the personality traits of its CEO, the personality that he displays through media is one of high energy, high enthusiasm. As he says, he's a geek. But really, he loves the technology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I could easily envision or imagine that he's transferring that enthusiasm into the Intel culture, which kind of probably needed that getting back. You know, we've talked about this, but getting back to its technology roots, becoming more technology driven and less financially driven. So, yeah. Uh, and it's a giant company. It's a giant it, company. Right. So, you know, when you're that big at any given time, there are probably a dozen things that are not going right. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So the whole thing has to go right. And I think what I'm seeing, I really like. And I think they get it. I think the strategy that they're setting for the future seems right. This whole chiplet, Intel Foundry services, being open with other instruction set architectures, talking more comfortably and liberally about ARM and RISC-V and others are all kind of exactly where the industry is going. And by doing that, they not only react to what's going on in the industry, but they project and they direct and they lead the industry, which is exactly what you expect them to do. No, they've they've embraced the heterogeneity thing. And in fact, part of, they had some extensive comments about the UCIA, the Universal Chiplet Interconnect Express. And they were an original member of this 
coalition yeah. that's, mm-hmm. that's been developing this technology, other major technology leaders. So Right on. I think it is actually coming substantially from them. And we talked about that also with Steve Conway last week on customization. Yeah. Yeah. Another piece that came out last week was just, was an article that I wrote, actually, a feature mm-hmm. piece on the Rocky Linux operating system. And uh-huh. it, Speaking of open systems. <laughs> right. And this is a story in which its predecessor was CentOS, or also pronounced CentOS, very popular in the HPC AI arena among companies, and some major companies used CentOS for developing you know, large-scale HPC AI heterogeneous clusters. And as the folks at CIQ told me, in December of 2020, Red Hat announced they were no longer going to support CentOS. And within a couple of hours, a man named Gregory Kurtzer, who's a Linux leader, kind of a Linux guru, said, well, we're going to, who, and he was the originator of CentOS, announced that we're going to keep that operating system going. We're going to keep developing it. It's called Rocky Linux. And I found it very fascinating, and the response to Red Hat's announcement was very emotional and mostly negative. These developers and users were very attached to this operating system. Yeah. It, it had really become enmeshed in the fabric of their daily work life. Right, right, right. Well, I think you know my view is that there was a time when we had OS wars, where OS various operating systems did not look anything like each other. And then Unix took over, and it was all open systems and... You had Unix wars where, you know, mm-hmm. HP's version of Unix and IBM's and Sun's and all the other people's Unix versions were not quite the same. And then you had AT&T System 5 Release 4, and then you had Berkeley Unix, and you had Santa Cruz Operations Unix. So then you had, you know, those variants. And then open source came along and Linux took over, and now you got Linux wars. <laughs> so as you go from OS wars to Unix wars to Linux wars, you would expect that the differences are in the minutiae, and that it all substantially is the same. Mm. But in fact, and it's also funny that while everybody talks about being buck-for-buck compatible, there's still a lot of stuff that isn't compatible. It's not just the kernel. It's like everything you build around it. So Mm. the software stack has really grown to provide opportunities for folks to get used to something and not like something else. And these things all become religious at the end because user interface in general becomes becomes religious. You get used to it. You just don't like to change. So the pain is real, albeit a bit of a, you know, first world kind of a problem. Well, you know, and to be fair to Red Hat, what they proposed as a, what they called a next step was CentOS Stream. And they said it's a natural, inevitable next step intended to fulfill the project's goal of furthering enterprise Linux innovation. But the analogy, not being a, a user of Linux, and not to make light of it, but I'm trying to think of an analogy that might work for somebody like me who's not a Linux user. But I think of the pain involved in shift. I'm a lifelong yeah. PC yeah. user and moving over to a Mac and dealing. If you're under pressure and you're working hard and you've got to get stuff done and it's all in real time and you're trying to deal with a different user interface, it's painful. No, right on. And for me, you know, my analogy is when you rent a car that you're not familiar with. And, you know, you can drive it somewhere and you don't have to learn everything about it if you're just going from point A to point B. But if you're going to drive it for the next four days, you probably have to spend a little bit of time getting, you know, used to where things are and 
And you may or may not really like the experience. You may just like the car that you're used to. So I think there's also things like that. But also applications may or may not break depending on what they're relying on. And because the software stack is so tall, Mm. you have to, the compatibility matrix and the testing matrix that you have to do can be non-trivial. Even though things really should work, you have to verify that they do. And that certification process can be a pain. But the move from a Red Hat standpoint made sense. And in fact, it's, you know, what they're offering is pretty good too, but it's not exactly precisely CentOS. <laughs> yeah. So this effort led by Kurtzer, and he also formed a CIQ of which he's CEO, and it's a technology company offering, you know, support services for Rocky Linux and other technologies. But it's been an absolute hit. It's absolutely pulled forward from the CentOS community. They're reporting 250,000 operating system image downloads in a typical month. And some months have spiked to 750,000 downloads. Wow, that's pretty good. Yeah. I saw the curves. The Easy Build guys had a conference a few months ago and they showed some adoption curves and it was just spiking up and it's rapidly found its place again. And of course, they're also building the fuzzball that I'm looking forward to catching up with at SC22, see what they're doing there. Yeah. Good, good, good team. Good team. All of them, really. Yeah, pretty brilliant bunch of people there. And we thought we might conclude with uh, some brief remarks about Tesla's supercomputer called Dojo. To me, it, it fits into a pattern we're seeing over the last, and picking up steam over the last few years of increasing customization within HPC and supercomputing that people want their own unique approach that fits their unique set of workloads. You know, Tesla with its technology prowess, that's the Dojo system is attracting some attention. Yeah, we covered the chip that is the subject of their supercomputer when we covered the Hot Chips conference a month ago or so. Hmm. They had at least two talks at that conference, which is quite a bit by one vendor. And it was a great recruitment opportunity for them. And my recollection is that their strategy made pretty good sense. It was a reasonable strategy. Now, whether or not a car company should build its own chips is a different question. I think Tesla is extraordinarily vertically integrated. And because they're successful, they're causing other car companies to want to follow in their footsteps. And we shall see if that strategy pans out in the future. But they're not a chip company. And I think the ability to keep up with the likes of NVIDIA and Intel and Microchip and you know all these other players is a little in question in my mind. There's a risk uh, there, yeah. But the, but the system looks pretty nice. Now there are 55 other AI chips and they all claim to be better than somebody else for whatever they do. So it's hard for me to tell whether they're going to have a competitive advantage in anything other than what they built it to do. Hmm. But we shall see that too. I think it's uh, they certainly are spending money on it and their existing system, I believe, is based on the traditional Intel NVIDIA with thousands, you know, for like 14,000 and 10,000. Yeah. Well, it'll be a story we'll continue to watch because Elon Musk is always at the center of a public spotlight. So <laughs> he certainly has become a celebrity and, you know, and that's a good thing and, a, and, a, and also a warning for everybody that we have to remember that when we listen to him, we're listening to a celebrity in his capacity as a celebrity, mm-hmm. not in his capacity as a technical guy or a business guy, which might be the case if you see him one-on-one or in a smaller meeting. 
and celebrities are after all celebrities they're not so you have to be careful a little bit but generally they always do good stuff and they execute well yes all right well great chatting with you again shaheen thanks so much and likewise always a pleasure great thank you everybody for listening until next time that's it for this episode of the at hpc podcast Every episode is featured on InsideHPC.com and posted on OrionX.net. Use the comment section or tweet us with any questions or to propose topics of discussion. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The At HPC Podcast is a production of OrionX in association with InsideHPC. Thank you for listening.